Many people have problems with art and not with reality. So why is art different? It's pretty simple, right? This is knowledge, this is thinking, this is thought. Yeah, it does something strange with your head. Welcome to the Undergang Armchair. Bring it. Welcome to the Undergang Armchair. My name is Ando. Happy New Year, friends. I hope you guys had a good one. I also hope that, uh, unlike me, you swiftly found the horse and remounted without too much confusion. We are getting back on track here. We are not done with our slow motion launch of the new platform yet, but the bones are there. The structure is in place. It, uh, it turns out making a child is tough work, huh? Did any of you guys happen to listen to the other new podcast we have on the platform, by the way? If you didn't, check it out on our site, culturalbandwidth.com. It's uh, a lot more concise than this program, that much I can say. But more importantly, we have a great artist and an incredibly sweet human on the show today, Nana dubois Boul. I've gotten to know her a bit over the last year or so. We actually work together a bit professionally. And uh, the more I hear about what she does, how she does it, the more I fall in love with her work. It's thoughtful, it's well-researched, and it's also very tactile, which I find to be actually a very rare combination. It's, uh, it's hard for artists to lean equally on research and material when you're creating projects, and it's something I, uh, I tend to think about a lot in terms of my own work. And so those are the themes of the conversation today, process and materials, and I think you'll find it very interesting. Nana is open-hearted and very generous person in the way she talks about her process, so I'm going to let her take it from here. Enjoy. Oh, oh, I almost forgot. You can also see that she has work up two places at the moment, right now, so uh, go see some of it in person. The first one is a show at the Royal Danish Library called Blind Spots, which is open until the end of the month, 31st of January, and the other is a much-talked-about show at Aros Museum in Aarhus, which is called Cool calm and collected and it runs until the 2nd of april it actually has a ton of great artists in it a lot of folks who've been on on this show previously so uh, that's really really worth going to see i'm going to try to get my ass over there as well okay that's it enjoy this talk with nana good place an interesting place for me to start is often uh kind of in in real life as mm -hmm. the as the millennials say mm -hmm. uh the fact that i worked in a production place uh, a mm -hmm. frame shop and then people come in with all sorts of stuff mm -hmm. all the time mm -hmm. and then you came in with it was cyanotypes right mm -hmm. So that's where I met you. You had a bunch of cyanotypes you had to show. And of course, my ears perk up because I'm very interested in photographic processes and methods and stuff. Uh, and then my boss was like, oh, yeah, she's from New York. And I was like, well, she sounds Danish. He's like, no, no, but she lived in New York. And I was like, who's this person? And, no, 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 no. and then you just then you were gone for a while. And then you came back. And at some point I mentioned to you, I had a workshop and stuff. And so. I think the thing I like about that is the way that you get to know artists, not through books or, or, or websites or even exhibitions mm -hmm. necessarily, but through the backside, the production side. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I don't know. What's a good place to start? Do you want to start with the uh, cyanotypes? We could do that. Um, it's a project called uh, Botanizing on the Asphalt that I spent the whole year of 2015 to is, make. Is botanizing a word? Botanizing? <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's yes, wild. Yes. Um, and actually, the expression comes from uh, Walter Benjamin, the German mm. thinker. He talks about the um, flaneur, the city wanderer, as someone who, quote unquote, goes botanizing on the asphalt. Oh, interesting. Um, and I, I always, or when, I, when I came across that notion, I, I found it very beautiful. So that was sort of a reference point for me in this project. It's a project actually about trash about looking at different city areas through their discarded objects. And Benjamin is one reference point. Another one is Anna Atkins, who was a British uh, botanist and photographer who in the 1840s spent 10 years of her life 
documenting British algae plants mm. using the cyanotype technique. So she was a pioneer within early photography. Right. But until recently, she has not been very much written about mm. in the history of photography. So that was also an aspect that well, I was interested in. It's interesting, too, about cyanotypes that they were a form of uh, documentation. Uh-huh. They were less photographic. They were a photo process, uh-huh. but they were used like blueprints. Everybody knows blueprints. Yeah. Those are cyanotypes. Yeah. So they were used in the field because they're fairly easy also. You don't need a lot of chemicals and stuff to make prints of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has been used a lot in botany, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, yeah, there was this impulse. You, uh, of course, a lot of the early photographers were very interested in mm-hmm. in botany. And I know, for instance, Henry Fox Talbot, he really wanted his photographs to be used as botanical illustrations because um, unlike f- uh, botanical drawings, you could get the finest details um, on the one hand. On the other hand, you could not in the contact print um, get the different uh, states of the plant. Right, right. It's very Um, static. It's that moment. Yeah, it's that moment. So there's that contradiction. Um, But in Anna Atkins' um, algae cyanotypes, you really get all the details. And of course, there's that aspect of them that they are blue, So, which in a way speaks very nicely to these that they are underwater mm. plants. Um, and she spent 10 years of her life doing this project and she made 10 herbariums. So one a year for 10 years. And they all came out, I think, in an edition of around 12. One of the questions I always really like uh, or I really wonder about is when you have a kind of highly researched and uh, really well thought through mm-hmm. project, I like to rewind 10 or 15 years and wonder where art started in that sense, you know, because most of us draw as kids or something. And then there's a slow shift to this idea that like there's a thing called a job as an artist. There's an education as an artist, you know, and things slowly start to change. You become part of an art historical discussion and find who you like and stuff. But where did like how did you get led into art? Were you a painter once upon a time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was. <laughs> so actually, well, my my path is very winding. So actually, I started art school in Amsterdam in 1997. And why did you go to art school? Uh, well, for a long time, I was debating whether I would like to become an architect or maybe an art historian or possibly an artist. Did There's, someone introduce you to the idea of being um, an artist? Did you go to like a, a focus school? I or, did, or yes, yes. Was there, was there a teacher there or something? Throughout high school, I was very determined that I would like to be an architect. Okay. And then after high school, I um, I went to a Folkehøjskole, mm-hmm. Holbæk Kunsthøjskole. Okay, so an art, um, uh, a, a semi-private art school. They're hard to say, but it's like a preparatory art for the sake of art. Exactly. School. Yeah. And that's where you got introduced to the yeah. idea of an education in yeah. arts. And that's where things started to shift, where I started to meet people who actually studied at the art academy. And It opens a whole different world. Yeah, because I'm not from a family with, of artists. Exactly. I'm, my, my parents are very interested in art. They mm. took me very early on to, to see a lot of art exhibitions yeah. and took me to the theater and stuff like that. So I've been exposed to art from an early age. But actually, I think if we rewind even further back, a shifting point for me, I was always as a kid interested in drawing. And then as when I became a teenager, I really wanted to learn mm. to draw. I was very occupied by making images. And then when I was 12, I started with a friend to do um, radio programs for the regional branch of national public radio. I had a radio show when I was 12. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's and, crazy. Um, and then I started... Um, to ask people questions about things that I was interested in mm. myself. And in a funny way, this dynamic between making images and starting conversations with other people and turning them into little montages for the radio um, is somehow re- very linked to what I still do today. I like, understand um, you completely. 
<laughs> like uh, I examine things by making images and and also by having conversations mm. with people interested mm. in the topics that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, briefly I can say I studied two years in Amsterdam at the Rietveld Academy. A very good school. A good school and a very international school. Um, then I came back to Denmark and I studied actually one year at Fyns Kunstakademi, um, which was a really great year for me with a lot of wonderful teachers. I met really amazing people. Mm. Matthew Buckingham was one of them and he has really been a guiding star for mm. me. And then I I started the year after at the Royal uh, Academy of Fine Arts. The big daddy. The big daddy. <laughs> I was there for five years. <laughs> And then right after that, I moved to New York. That's and, where you became a New Yorker. Yeah. And I studied for one year at the Whitney Independent Study Program and ended up actually staying in New York for six years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now I'm sort of back and forth between New York. So my base is in Copenhagen, but I go back as much as I can and still... You still have a network like, there and a yeah. world... Uh, uh, yeah. What you built up in those mm-hmm. six years. Yeah. And not only necessarily in New York, because a lot of the people that I studied with, they actually moved back to Europe. Cannot live. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, yeah, so, uh, can't yes, afford there's, New York. there's New York, but also then colleagues right. in other cities. Yeah. 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 It's funny. The school I went to in Chicago, everybody moved away. Almost nobody's there anymore. But it's weird how it does kind of stick together, these working relationships. Yeah. I would say like on a weekly basis, I'm in contact with someone mm. from my weekly class yeah. so so how did the process go from 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 going from uh, you know drawing and painting and making images to researching and uh, how do you want to say developing kind of projects mentally mm-hmm. before even starting on them mm-hmm. is that a process that happened through seeing other people's practice uh, other works you responded mm-hmm. to mm-hmm I mean, there was that radio aspect of examining mm-hmm. things, of of asking questions, of having conversations with different people that I always sort of brought with me. Then I love to read. And for a long time, reading was just something that I did like as a spare time activity. And then all of a sudden, I started seeing artists um, combining reading and making photography. Uh, Myra Davy has been an artist that I've been looking a lot at, uh, a Canadian photographer based in New York, and she speaks about her photographic practice as a practice driven by reading. Mm. Um, and and reading her saying that was very a, a big inspiration for me actually. There's always those moments that kind of open everything up. Mm-hmm. For me, it was seeing Solowit uh-huh. and realizing I was like 17 or something, and I saw a big Solowit show. And finding out that he just made plans on how to make this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then other people made it or it was made after the concept, after the detailed arguments. And that's when I realized, oh, art isn't just a paintbrush to canvas or photograph or something. It can be be driving ideas Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. um, in all sorts of forms. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how those, those, those like... Those doors get kicked open in yeah. your head and they yeah. just stay open. Yeah, and yeah. you see all sorts of other possibilities. Yeah. yeah, if if I look back at my education, I can like maybe say five diff- there was five or six different encounters that mm-hmm. were super influential. So for instance, Matthew Buckingham, Martha Rosler came and was a guest teacher while I was at the Royal Danish Academy. Mm. Um, and reading together with her and having those two group discussions also really opened my eyes for a lot of things. Mm. We did a project together with her for um, the Venice Biennial in 2003 for the Utopian Station. But it was very chaotic and (laughs) (laughs) project, but but the process was very, very interesting and eye-opening for me. Then I studied with Andy's Lagarde. I'm going to get her on the show one day. Yes, you should. And... um, I think with her, like we had a lot of discussions about what and how. So, like, like how, 
what you are trying to talk about and how you are talking about it. Which is Go something which, a, which is, yeah, which, which sometimes is not stressed enough, I think. Uh-huh. That you get like ideas are, are driven solely by the merit of the idea and very little about the, the actual, um, you know, realization of mm-hmm. the idea. That makes such a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And that's where process goes back, where we're going to start mm-hmm. talking about materials and how you do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's coming back now, but it's been under understudied and mm-hmm. under reference for the past, I don't know, 10 years mm-hmm. or, you know, something like that. When I went to school, it was very theory-based and mm-hmm. not so much production-based, mm-hmm. uh, which I always missed. And I think there was also a tendency towards that, at least in the departments that I was studying in, but then Anne started as a professor. And I would say it's really a cornerstone in my in mm-hmm. my work to make that connection. So I would say like my photographic work is experimental, but also conceptual in that there's a connection between what and how. And very material. Why you use the materials you use, Mm -hmm. what the processes mean, what they have meant, Mm -hmm. a dialogue with a history, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. And that's that's one of the things that grabs me the most about it. Mm -hmm. Because I think art where 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 the materials have meaning that corresponds to the ideas that drive the meaning is, you know, double strength because there's more layers of discussion happening. Multi dimensional works. Mm -hmm. Um so where did did you study i mean did you work with photography uh, previously or did that slowly come through reading and history and material or so i took actually photo, photo classes at the Folkehoe school and mm-hmm. i was always interested in photography but i was not trained technically as a photographer when i was studying at the royal academy there were so many things we could do so many workshops so like so I actually didn't spend that much time. Did you in try the dark? The dark but you I did, did try, try the dark room, it. yes. Yeah. And um so I knew how to I knew the ba- dark room basics and I was starting right at that point where I was both using old school video equipment and sixteen millimeter but also digital. So mm. right in that Two thousand and three. Exactly. Yeah, I remember. That's when I went to school. <laughs> Which too. In, at that point I felt it was really annoying. But actually now I see an advantage in having tried the different approaches and yeah. techniques. Um but I was never really only interested in the technical side. Um for every project I would look at, okay, what is what what am I trying to talk about and what, what should I choose? Right. Yeah. Which is an important distinction mm-hmm. when you get there to that point. Um, so actually, it is not until like this, maybe the past, I don't know, five, seven years that I've been look, going really into more technical details about mm-hmm. chemicals. and. Well, let's go back to techniques. botanizing the yeah. asphalt. Then, yeah, yeah. Because you had a, a historical... Uh, interest. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. Like, where does the basis of an idea like that come mm-hmm. from? Does it come from reading history books? Well, where do you, where does it start? Something like that. Well, for me, one project often leads to the next. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had done a long-term project about the flaneurs, the female flaneur, uh, thinking about how have women moved through cityscapes, how have they been represented in in critical thinking and in, in literature. Or how have been, have they not been mm-hmm. represented? And in that um, project, I came across Anna Atkins because I was also looking at early photography um, and looking at uh, female pioneers of photography. Mm-hmm. I came across her, um, and I would say this project has three legs. So there's Anna Atkins and there's Walter Benjamin. But I don't think of it as a um, historical project in that sense because what I'm actually interested in is looking at cityscapes and their discarded objects. So that's actually also a here and now, how do we live in cities? How do we move through cities? How do we engage with the objects that are parts of our lives? Which strikes me as Um, anthropological. In a way, yes. But then, of course, there's a visual dimension in my work that is maybe slightly different from Mm -hmm. how an anthropologist would approach the subject so um so the project actually um 
started because I was invited um, to do a work for an exhibition at Sculpture Center in New York, and mm. I had this idea. Um, and then I decided um, that I would make cyanotypes of objects, uh, co- discarded objects, collected in the streets around the exhibition space. Um, and I did that for a period of time, and then the work was 44 cyanotypes on a wall where I was when I composed the cyanotypes I looked at Anna Atkins Mm -hmm. compositions and I thought of my compositions also as pages in a herbarium but where Anna Atkins herbarium was a classical herbarium with plants my herbarium was an abstract take because there would both be man-made and organic objects Mm -hmm. um but each each paper or each each sheet was composed in a way so that it is part of a bigger unit. There's that always a central placement of the object. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I decided it would be really interesting to see if objects would be different if I looked at another city. Um, and over that year, I then made a chapter uh, in Copenhagen and in Riga. And and they were exhibited in those places. And were they different? They were different. Hmm. Yeah, I think my conclusion was not so much a national difference, but certainly that you could um, see what kind of neighborhood yeah. you were looking yeah, at, what kind of say. activities. So I could see that Long Island City, where um, sculpture centers located, is like a semi-industrial area still, or was at that time. Uh, There's a lot of traffic, so a lot of objects related to traffic, Mm. Um, like asbestos warnings or like this little um, Christmas tree scent thing that you hang in your car. car. Yeah, 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 from the rearview mirror. Yeah, whereas uh, Newhound, I was showing the Copenhagen chapter at Charlottenborg, Mm -hmm. that is very much um, an area for leisure and tourism. So the objects that I found there would be... um, like beer cans, um, a lot of beer cans, like the, what do you call it? Um, a little case for sunglasses, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, ice cream spoons and so forth. Mm. And then of course there were objects that were common in all places, such as uh, coffee cups and cigarette butts. Yeah. Um, but then I thought, okay, well, to make that comparison, I need actually a fourth component. So I decided to make a book. And I invited one of my uh, colleagues, an art, um, Canadian art historian, Jen Kennedy, who I studied with also at the Whitney, mm. um, and who was very interested in, in city walking and photography. And I invited her to do a letter conversation over a couple of months where we would think about what does it mean to read a city through trash and what does it mean to do it through the cyanotype technique. Um, so in this book, which is also called But an Icing on the Asphalt, there are a series of uh, cyanotypes from the three cities, but then also the conversation with Jen, where we speak about like the differences and similarities, mm. Mm. and then also touch on the references mm-hmm. to Atkins and Benjamin and yeah, all the literary... The process you the, have. And the process, earlier. because I wrote, we wrote the letters as I was in Staten's Werksteder. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is doing, the state's art workshops yeah, here in, in town. Where I, where I had a short residency where I was producing the Copenhagen chapter. And what was in a way really nice was that a lot of my notes from the process then found their way into our letter conversation. Mm-hmm. So I would write to Jen and say, well, we were supposed to work outside today, but it was all cast, so those large cyanotypes, we didn't make them today. Yeah. I had some weird stains, I don't know. Like, they seem to <laughs> reappear in the paper and we have no clue why, what is happening. Yeah. So, actually, in the letters, you see these um, movements back and forth between something, so very dis- concrete descriptions about the working process, but mm-hmm. then also more theoretical or literary um, thoughts and ideas related to the project which in i think in a way mirrors the way i work and the way i really like to work like i really like those processes where 
theory and practice interweave? It strikes me that you're very open about the whole thing all the way through. Not only are you uh, are you open to what's going to happen, the end result, mm -hmm. but you're also open in in kind of the way you talk about it so you're actually publishing letters that you wrote back and forth also the ones where you're like ah fuck this is you know this isn't working or what the hell you know and that sort of thing i think is often obscured in an artistic practice mm -hmm. and if it's not directly obscured then it's sort of obscured through a type of language or a type of discourse yeah. um and that i think is a strong point that people forget in the arts because you get so hardened by being an artist. You eat so much shit <laughs> all the way through that after a while you forget to be kind of open and vulnerable. And that can be a kind of great way to find a way in work, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's frustrating. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I totally agree with you. And I think um, there's... Well, I, I tend to work really long time on my projects. For instance, a botanizing project, I spend a whole year with that. And I think there's something weird and artificial about then the work only materializing as the print because there was so much else in that process. Right, it seems like a waste to throw the other yeah. things away. And also there was so much interesting material that I came across and I thought it was it would be such a pity not to pass on some of those stories and mm. and thoughts um so now when i show the work i show it I, like a on a wall like all the prints but then there's always a book next to it mm. and it's like people don't have to read the book I, I i tend to think of my work as projects with different entries different doors so that there's that immediate visual experience of seeing the prints at the wall uh, but then also, if if you want, I would like you to invite you to go on that journey that I've been on, mm. thinking about this project and making it. It lets you read the book in two ways, too, or the project in two ways. Mm -hmm. So you can actually revisit. Mm -hmm. You know, often a book of pictures, unless you're very specifically interested in revisiting something, maybe gets looked at a couple of times and then gets parked on the bookshelf. Mm -hmm. Whereas... Your projects or these types of projects will invite you to look at the pictures and then sit down and look at the process too, mm -hmm. how the pictures became. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of very interesting also hearing you talk about uh, the project you had at the uh, National Photo Museum mm -hmm. and hearing you talk about the process of uh, visiting these islands. Forgive me, I don't remember which ones they were. Oh, um, the U.S. Virgin Islands. The U.S. Virgin Islands and studying the history and then just, you know, hunting for donkeys, you know, and using donkeys as a proxy for colonial history. And, and the fact that these donkeys are not native, you know, but have become native, have gone native in a weird way. Yeah. Maybe we should just tell it's an exhibition called Blind Angles, which is currently up at the National Danish Museum of Photography, speaking about uh, Danish colonial history in in what is now the U.S. Virgin Islands. Right, which and people outside of Denmark don't know was sold to the U.S. in... 2000 and... 1917, 1917, 100 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so people, I don't know, I, I never knew it until I moved to Denmark. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a whole history of Danish involvement there, of course, as a colonial, mm -hmm. former colonial power there. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, they, like economically, they played a very big role in... Copenhagen and Denmark mm, becoming mm. what it is. Right, and the sugar plantations mm -hmm. and, you know, Slave trade. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but that's a side jump, as you say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but tell me about the, like, what happened after you made uh, botanizing on the asphalt? What did, what doors did that open? Because it feels like in a way that that was kind of the first project in a series that you've mm -hmm. then continued on mm -hmm. now you did mention where it came from mm -hmm. but in a way it seems like a specific thread that you've gone on so what happened next shortly after i was invited i got a really interesting invitation to come down to uh, miran which is a northern italian city town in the alps what's it called a uh, miran mirano mm. um and to think about a project for an exhibition in public space. 
It was initiated by a curatorial uh, collective called BAU, Lisa Massa, Felipe Ramos, and Simone Meyer. And we were eight artists um, invited to come and think. Um, and I went down to Moran, and uh, what surprised me as I entered the city was that although the city is located in the Alps, you see mountains with snows, snow all over, mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of palm trees in parks and in gardens. And visually, there's this clash, I'll show you a picture here, of palm trees. <laughs> and huge mountains and in huge the background. mountains with snow. And I was thinking about different possibilities of what I could do and what I was interested in. And then I actually decided to do a project where I would investigate when, why, and how did these palm trees arrive in Miran. Right. They are not native. To they Miran. are not native. It's funny. I was just in the Alps and I just realized the town I was in also had palm trees. Mm -hmm. It didn't occur to me, but mm -hmm. yeah. So actually what I found out was that the palm trees arrived in Miran when the city was transformed into a health resort in the 1880s. A whole, um, they call it themselves, Alicia Flora was imported and that were that was plants from all over the place from north america from the middle east and from from china um, and these plants were put there in order to signify the foreign and the exotic mm -hmm. and something not linked to labor something relaxing and beachy exactly yeah um and of course, the palms, they didn't come directly from China. They probably came from botanical gardens in, in Europe because at this time there was this competition between botanical gardens about having the most and the most exotic species. Mm. So, and, and the collecting of all these plants were part of a bigger colonial enterprise. Um, so my work was a big mural um, on a wall in, in, in public space in Miran, where I did a photogram of a palm leaf. And then I did a book where my photograms of different components of the palm, mm -hmm. um, I printed along with my photographs of from the area. But then also there are three conversations in the book where I try to look at the symbolic and botanical trajectories of the palm trees. Um, so there's one conversation with a local botanist, um, Otto Uber, where we speak about why do the palms, where did they come from and mm -hmm. why do they thrive so well in this area. Then there's a conversation with Joanna Benham, who's a um, scholar, design scholar at the Victorian and Albert Museum. Mm -hmm. And she has an expertise in um, 19th century wallpapers. And we speak about uh, palm trees as a motif in 19th century wallpaper. Of and course, how I they can are, see it in my eyes. How they it's like depicted. that specific kind of wallpaper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also how palm trees have been depicted in different ways throughout the century and what that tells us about a shifting shifting views of nature and shifting worldviews. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, there is a conversation with um, an architecture historian, um, Susanne Stacker, mm -hmm. who did a, a big exhibition in Miran called Dreamland Alps, where she was looking at um, experimental and um, utopian architecture using the Alps as a, as a setting. And we talk about what it is in this landscape that sort of invites to do these projects and about the impulse of having a place, place which is already spectacular and adding all these extra elements. What, what kind of impulse is that? What did it mean at right, the, the time? Right, the human touch in yeah, the natural. And, yeah. Um, and what does it mean when we look at it today? Mm. Um, so, so the project is both a visual journey and I was using the photogram 
as a technique because I was thinking about uh, photography of that period and mm-hmm. early mm-hmm. botanical photography and thinking about William Henry Fox Talbot's uh, plant photograms. Um, but then also the book has these pockets of more dense information mm-hmm. that you can dive into. Mm-hmm. And the book was published by a, an Italian press called Humboldt Books. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great press. A great press that I was so lucky to get in contact with through the curators of the exhibition. Yeah. And their program is that they do art books that are travel books or travel books that are artist books. Mm-hmm. So in a way, they work with a conceptual take on the travel guide. Yeah. And that was, from my project, a, a really great fit, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such an interesting area, South Tyrol, and people, <laughs> people kind of forget about the specific history of that area. Uh, and the uh, kind of northern Germanic mm-hmm. influence on it, like you you mentioned, it's called Meran, but it's also Merano, and those areas all have an Italian name and a local dialect name, and it's not German; it's a dialect. It's Tyrolean, mm-hmm. um, and and also just the landscape. Those mountains are incredible, and uh, yeah, just the influence from south and north, and they don't really see themselves as Italian; they <laughs> see themselves as Tyrolean, and. Uh, yeah, I've spent a fair amount of time there. It's really, it's really something else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this picture really <laughs> speaks to it in a funny way. We see here a picture with the snow-covered mountains and then palms in the front, palm trees in the front. Um, the, I was speaking before about how the palms were meant as a leisure component, but in a funny way, they have become very functional because they are always used um, in tourist. Um, Brochures, brochures and stuff, yeah, advertising. depictions, and someone said to me, "Well, you know the the mountains with the snow, they are they are kind of used to attract an audience from the south, and the palm trees from the north." <laughs> <laughs> it is so a that, good mix, that's right? this visual visual clash, yeah. which also is in a way very functional. Totally. So I'll put a picture of that up on the uh, on the show notes for this, yeah. so people can see it. Yeah. But it's true; it's very striking, and also just kind of you know you have this massive shape of a mountain, and then you have the spiky fronds of this palm, and they kind of they they have a very nice interplay just aesthetically mm-hmm. on it. So so in this project, you know, it all started out by like this visual impulse of seeing something which I thought, well, this is really strange. Mm. And then I started from there and actually begin to look at it both like both from a local perspective or a regional perspective, but also more broadly from a design or art or aesthetic, a more like aesthetic, more broad perspective. Mm. So how kind of, the research continues to strike me and these mm-hmm. are the conversations you have with people and uh, you know you are clearly very knowledgeable about the history of, of palm trees and what you know how it relates to you know all sorts of different angles what does research actually look like for you are you going to libraries and just digging mm-hmm. that's awesome <laughs> i'm plowing through libraries i love libraries and then just asking people i guess yeah. you, you find people and then you can i mean the great thing about nowadays is you can actually contact authors mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. easier than you mm-hmm. may have been able to before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it seems like you work, it's not exactly collaboratively, but you're not afraid to ask people for their input, mm-hmm. um, which drives the final project. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, do, the research part of it, is it also tiring? Do you have moments where you're just kind of like, oh my God, this is a mess. What the hell am I going to like? I have so much information. I don't know what to do with it. Or I have so little, I can't find it. Yes. Uh, and it, it must be a very long part of the process. It's a long part of the process. And there's always this back and forth between, you know, in the beginning, I paint with very broad brush strokes. And I I do all these big mind maps. I have this big um, Ooh, that's sheet of paper where I map my ideas and try to map a landscape of, of the project. That was a good-ass idea. Yeah. And then uh, you start to fill in things, I imagine, yeah. between points. Exactly. And make connections... Grows. Um, and then I also see sometimes weight shift so that there might be stuff that I in a way think is interesting, but that I simply have to leave out because the, 
just because it becomes too much. And then that may appear in a later project. With this palm tree project, I felt it was extremely interesting to keep the conversations in the book very, very focused. I mean, these people are amazing and it's truly wonderful that they wanted to spend their time speaking to me because the book would not have been the same without them. Um, but you could do a whole project with each of them because yeah. they have so much super interesting knowledge. So there's both a um, process of mapping a landscape, then there's a process of collecting and gathering and making images and gathering information, reading, making notes. And then there is a process of distillation. And that's a hard one. That's mm -hmm. experience, right? Because mm -hmm. that's one thing I noticed between, mm -hmm. uh, I'm just going to say it directly, immature and mature art projects is that the immature ones don't know what to cut out. Mm -hmm. Because you said it yourself, there can be ultra fascinating elements, mm -hmm. which you have to just write down on a little note card and put away mm -hmm. for later because mm -hmm. it can fuck up the whole project. Mm -hmm. And that vision, that feeling you get for a project uh, it's hard mm -hmm. it's really mm -hmm. hard it can be heartbreaking but i think it actually is comforting to think about well maybe yeah. this can be another project and that's yeah. amazing then you have an idea that you can use for something that's else. a good way to think about <laughs> it yeah because i mean it's the same even just with direct imagery right when as someone who's a more traditional photographer you take uh let's just say 400 pictures and then you're supposed to make a series out of 20 mm -hmm. how the fuck do you do that mm -hmm. You know, one trick I've learned is just to like, let's say you have an edit of 60 or something, mm -hmm. just to say, if I only had 10, if mm -hmm. I was forced to have 10, what would they be? Mm -hmm. And then do that sort of process of forcing yourself simply to do it. And then you realize the project actually kind of gets stronger in a weird way. It's, it's kind of indescribable, mm -hmm. but there's something about leaving things out that, mm -hmm. that really uh, uh set the tone mm -hmm. for a project mm -hmm. and you must have sudden you know un unimaginable amounts of material mm -hmm. when you're out there in notes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and as i said it can be really painful but also very liberating <laughs> yeah. and to actually start to see that like ah yes right. to let go of something and then you start to see a clearer picture do you have a very detailed system of note-taking and idea cataloging um, well i do the mind maps and I do several mind maps often mm -hmm. it's within a within one project. Then I often have a logbook in my computer where I simply write um, whenever I read uh, something or come across something mm -hmm. or someone tells me something. And those logbooks are like a mix of reading notes, practical notes, uh, like your phone number in the dark room is somewhere in there. Uh, like what kind of paper do I... Right. Like, it's everything, every it's everything. Information yeah. You can keep. yeah, yeah, yeah. And every project has that. And when I go back, I often like I can see like how I, in the beginning, I'm like searching, and it's very broad. And then as things move ahead, yeah, it starts to things start focus. to focus and materialize. Mm. But certainly throughout the process, there are moments like all the way to the end where you are like, ooh. This is really hard. Can I, how can I, I land I, this plane? Yeah, can I land this plane? <laughs> and you know, you saw me in the in the dark room working on my latest project. Yeah, and, and I think you were fairly focused at that point. You knew what your reference points mm -hmm. were, and you were, mm -hmm. you know, it's probably a good idea to get into that project. Mm -hmm. uh, was this the one you made directly after uh, the um, palm trees? No, uh, no. Actually, I made two other projects between palm trees and and my latest project. I don't know if you want to hear. It Let's might be a long line, journey. Because this is probably the one that follows the palm trees most yeah, kind of yeah. in that line, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, because right after the palm trees, I went to Bucharest and did a project about stray dogs mm -hmm, <laughs> for mm -hmm, the Bucharest mm -hmm. Biennial. And then I went to Zagreb and did right. a project there. And it seems so often then, like these projects are based also of invitations. Yeah. And, and the local, what you research locally when you do them. Yeah. So, there's, of course, I have some overall interests that I think reoccur in many mm. of my projects. And like you'll see in many of them that I often tend to t to focus on a smaller element. It can be from botany, from architecture, from animal life, an image. And through that, I try to look at broader, more general 
ideas or more abstract patterns. And that comes through uh, having a practice. You know, it also mm-hmm. comes, you, you learn about yourself each project mm-hmm. you make. Mm-hmm. So although there's a, maybe there can be different geographical reference points or different urban reference points, I, I think there are also a lot of connections and I like like a lot of references in, in the material that I read right. in preparation. You always do research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't seem to know what you're going to do. If you get an invite to go mm-hmm. to Bucharest, mm-hmm. then I imagine it's just a big question mark in your head. <laughs> and so you have a process you've worked out to begin, yeah. but you're kind of like, well, what's it going to be this time? You yeah. Know? yeah. But, uh, but, but that- And then, of course, also the works, they do have a life of their own. So I also show them. They do circulate afterwards. So, of course, there are some projects where I'm, like, completely starting from scratch, but then sometimes I show existing work together with new work in different sure. constellations. Sure, if you get invited yeah. to, yeah, something. But certainly, for every project, I have sleepless nights <laughs> when I get the first invitation. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Can I do it again? Yeah. <laughs> or what What? What will I do this uh, time? Uh, well, that's the that's the life of uh, artistic practice, I guess. Well, I think it's also a drive mm. Mm. that does, for every project, something unknown something new a challenge right, you have to be a little scared yeah to, i think that's get, important to get up in the morning and get the goddamn work yeah, yeah but i mean that that fits in well with then you got invited to uh make a show at arkin right mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. danish uh contemporary art museum yes which is a great place yeah around a year ago i was contacted by camilla yelving who's a curator at Arken. and she asked me if i would like to be part of a project where we would look together at man-made landscapes, um, at the relationship between humans and nature, and particularly at the landscape surrounding the Argen Museum, which is situated in a big um, beach bay park, Mm -hmm. which was reclaimed from the sea in the 1970s. Yeah, and it's kind of by itself. There isn't a lot of other stuff out there. Mm Mm-hmm. And the museum is then located, yes, mm-hmm. in this beach landscape. Mm-hmm. It was uh, established in, in 1996. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was really wonderful about this invitation was she invited me and another artist to Greenford. Um, and then there was also um, a researcher in residence, Nils Bubant, who is a professor of anthropology from Aarhus University. And um, we were going to have sort of a collaboration. Nils had already done workshops with the staffs at mm. with the staff at the museum about um man made landscapes, um the particular landscape and the idea of the Anthropocene. Um and then we came on board and I started having conversations with Camilla and Nils. Um strikes me that you had a very short amount of time to realize this yes, project. <laughs> it was very short. It was very busy. Yeah. Yes. So that was a little bit of a challenge. Mm. Um, luckily, it fitted very well into my calendar. Mm-hmm. So I was actually able to jump right into it. Mm. Um, and then also it fitted right into a lot of things that I was very interested in because a lot of my other projects had also dealt with landscapes in transformation. Um, well, that's the job of a good curator to find uh-huh. someone who is <laughs> going to... Uh, respond yeah. you know to what you're doing yeah um and yeah you know it'd be it'd be stupid to give that project to someone who would go what yeah <laughs> i don't what you know this isn't at all what i do yeah um and then of course i was also thinking for a moment what am i gonna do <laughs> and i went to look at the landscape and starting started to think and i decided that i wanted to map the landscape photographically. I wanted to look at how it was composed. Mm. I wanted to map this biotope by looking at its particles, its plants and its animals. Um, And I wanted to use early photographic cameraless techniques because I thought that there was an interesting connection between like early photography, like, you know, the impulse, the human impulse of 
registration of nature um, intensifies in the 19th century and that impulse gets a whole new dimension with the advent of photography. So photography has impacted the ways we depict but also interact with nature. Right, it went from being etchings by uh, artists attempting to depict plant and, mm-hmm. and life on a, uh, to being actual mm-hmm. registrations mm-hmm. of these. Uh, it is a fairly large jump. Mm-hmm. And I thought that there was something very interesting in looking at that early, but, uh, his, the early history of photography and botany mm. and where those uh, fields mm. uh, meet each other. Mm. So I would say my project is a photographic mapping of the specific area, but also a reflection of how we interact with landscapes, how we transform them and how this impulse has um, gotten a whole new dimension since the birth of photography. Mm. Mm -hmm. So concretely, I decided to look at um, the work of William Henry Fox Talbot and to use some of his methods, namely the photogram and the microgram. And then, and, and he was working on this in the 1840s, and he's really a pioneer within early photography, as you of course know. Um, and then I looked also at August Strindberg, who is a Swedish, a different kind of crazy, a different kind of photographer, <laughs> um, who is a, was a Swedish playwright who also experimented with both um, painting and photography. He, in the 1890s, did a series of what he called celestrographs. He had this vision that he wanted to create uh, images of the night sky, but he did not want to use a camera and a lens, which he distrusted, mistrusted. So um, he simply exposed his uh, plates under the starry night sky and got these images that in a funny way, looks like the night sky. But almost certainly are not. <laughs> almost certainly are not, yeah. because technically it's fairly impossible. Yeah. Uh, so most likely his images are images of dew or sand or imperfections in the chemical process. And I thought that duality was really interesting, that in fact what we're looking at in Strindberg's images is probably something very small, but it... it could represent something mm. very large. Mm. Um, and I think that spoke to attention in the um, subject matter of my project in an interesting way. Because, um, you know, a lot of thinkers right now point to that due to the complexities of the problems of our age, it's really important that different disciplines and different scales begin to speak to each other. Mm. Um, So I think there was a connection between the conceptual idea of that and then like in Strindberg, you would actually see that conflation Mm -hmm. and confusion Mm -hmm. in a very visual way. Mm -hmm. So Strindberg in this project was really a starting point for me, Mm. actually. Before Henry Fox Talbot. Yeah, ish, yeah. A way into the project. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically what I did was I started to collect plants and animals from the field. Um, and I started to work with you in the dark room where we did experiments of how to then create images. A lot of talking about how <laughs> shit would work and would not work and trying things. And, yeah. and lenses and mm. exposure times and so forth. Then I was doing a lot of reading, both more like theoretical reading, but also simply research about um, the area, mm. Kyrie Bay Beach Park. Um, I should also say where, what is very interesting is what you have there is um, sort of two degrees of man-made landscape. So Kyrie Bay Beach Park was established in the 70s. It was like a social democratic vision of a leisurely backdrop beach for everybody to human man. activity yeah. um, also the lagoons were made for coastal protection 
Um, then the museum was uh, established in the in 1996. The idea was that it was supposed to be located right at the coast. The museum architecturally looks like a stranded ship, but the coast was already then protected area. Therefore, the museum was placed like 500 meters inland. And then two years ago, um, a canal was dug around the museum. So in that way, the museum became surrounded by water mm. as planned. And this new landscape on the museum island was planned. And here we saw, or here we see a vision of a landscape. It was actually, the landscape architect told me he wanted to make a sort of a botanical garden presenting different uh, beach botanical habitats. Mm. But he was not allowed to do that because um, he could only plant mainly plants that were already in the area. So you can say, whereas the beach, big, bigger beach park, was an area based on a social democratic vision of nature being a backdrop to human activity, the landscape architect was very um, interested in biodiversity. Mm. So two very different. Agendas. Right, right, and the results uh, mm. become that sort of compromise between these two pushing forces. Mm -hmm. But at least something I was interested in was to look at these, like the very basic elements of the landscape and to look at how you actually see political visions and even do mm. political patterns if you start to pay attention. And on a photographic level, um, the idea was that I wanted to work with cameraless photography because what is characteristic of that is that unlike a classical um, landscape photography, it's not a photograph with a vantage point and a horizon. It's a kind of photograph where you as a photographer touch your motif. You're not using cameras and lenses. You're simply using light paper and then the object yeah. that you are depicting. Yeah, it's a whole different kind of uh, reflection or representation exactly. of, the, of the thing. So you're touching mm. the stuff that you're depicting. Also, there's a degree of unpredictability. So I would say in this whole project, there's been this balancing act for me of setting up systems, but also letting chance um, right, and as someone who got to see a little bit of it, I mm -hmm. saw what some of the things I got dropped and some of the things mm -hmm. I got brought in, mm -hmm. um, which of course, you know, time was of the essence <laughs> <so laughs> while we were doing it. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, you got this very handsome book published in very short time. Um, and I look forward to reading the text. But uh, But it seems like... Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about this book is it pulls on so many different things that you've done throughout history. In a way, it just, in your own history, it seems like like it really, uh, yeah, you've used the large format um, images on the side of the museum outside, your uh, gathering of things. I think it also bears mentioning this is like a, a windswept coastal plain. It is cold. It is windy. It is, it is, it's, it's a little raw mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very nice. It's it's kind of a small project in a way. It wasn't really, but in a way it was. You know, it's a small book and everything, but it reflects kind of the best of each of your other projects in a way. Yeah, uh, maybe we should just tell um, that the project material is called Intervals and Forms of Stones of Stars, and it materialized in three different components. So there were three big mural photographs. Um, which are huge. They're, they're you know, huge. Yeah, they are by like, 30 feet or something uh, like that. Yeah. This is eight meter by five, I believe, and one is nine meter long. Mm -hmm. And they are photographs from my series. So there's one of a big uh, crane fly wing. There's one of a marum uh, grass mm -hmm. plant. And then there's a, a celestogram of uh, dirt dust from the parking lot of uh, the museum. Mm -hmm. And they are mounted on the walls, outside walls of the museum. So in a way, they, those elements are in a way mappings or pic pictures of the landscape, but also placed in the middle of it. Mm. Like the grass and the trees around the house become part of the composition of the pictures, yeah. actually. Then there's a series of 30 photographs that were hung inside the museum during the exhibition. 
And then in the book, the whole series is uh, reprinted. There are also the images of of the prints outside. And then there are um, three texts. That's the one conversation with, with Nils Buband, who was the researcher in residence, uh, and who is also, uh, who's an anthropologist, very um, occupied with the idea of the Anthropocene. Um, and we have made a conversation, which is sort of a close reading of the landscape, where mm. we zoom in on all these small elements of marum grass and wild roses and oil spill in the sand. And by looking very closely, try to look at more broad patterns or questions. Then there's a conversation with um, Lucy Gallon, who is an art historian based in New York and one of my old colleagues. So um, you reached out to her? I reached out to her mm -hmm. because I knew that she knows a lot about early photography. She's now working at the MoMA's uh, photographic department. And uh, we have here a conversation about the historical references of my project, namely William Henry Fox Talbot and Anna Strindberg, and and what it means to read or to use those their methods in a contemporary photographic study. Mm -hmm. um, and then, lastly, there is um, a text of my field notes, um, interweaving reading notes, notes from the field, and notes from the dark room. Mm -hmm. I look forward to reading those. <laughs> I could read some if you want me sure. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's finish off with that. Mm -hmm. April 30th. The sky over the dunes is overcast as we approach the area at dusk. It is 8.41. In the southern parking lot is a car with the lights on. It stays parked like this for a very long time. As we wait for the darkness to settle, a white van enters the parking lot. Two young men in the front seats. When approaching us, the driver signals with the headlights and pulls up next to us. Are they here to meet someone, to trade something? Uncomfortable, we gather the stuff we've unpacked and drive away. The car follows us. When it continues straight towards the station at the crossing, we make a right turn and then a U-turn to return to the area. Both parking lots are now empty and it has become dark. Stars become visible between the clouds. We unpack and start to expose the photographic papers. I think of Strandberg when, when placing the first sheet on the ground. It is six degrees, windy and cold. I really like about those the way that you speak very factually about it. Again, it goes back to the way art often is written in such a convoluted, you know, you talk about ideas in such a, you know, international arts English, as they call it. And I really appreciate the way you write. And I think a good, a good way to end this would be to, to like, what, what, do, what do you feel like you're doing when you are writing about it? What is it? What's your goal when you're communicating it through writing rather than through imagery or found objects or... Well, it relates a little bit to what I spoke about before, that the writing creates a space or the books create a space where some of these stories can unfold in a different way because the, the time that you can spend with a book is different from the time that you, you spend in an exhibition space looking at a work. Um, also something I really enjoy when writing is to um, like to start to look at things from different perspectives and have different voices meet and sometimes also have vo voices that say different things, sometimes even contradict each other. And in that meeting, I think something starts to happen. Um, this specific text actually... You know, for the book, I had planned that I wanted to do the two conversations. And then the curator at some point said to me, so what about your own writing and your own notes? Could that find its way into the book? And then I thought, oh, I didn't plan that actually mm. from the beginning. But then I started to pull text fragments from this logbook that I'm always making into a new document. And then I started to distill these different lumps of text and then all of a sudden, I could see that something interesting happened. 
between the different types of text. You know, some of the the text bites are little quotes from books that I'm reading, and then something interesting happened when that met. You know, my descriptions of walking in the landscape or working mm. there at the parking lot in the dark, or um, it becomes descriptive to the whole process. Well, both descriptive, but also that's just zooming in and out, um, like looking both at something very concrete, but also looking at something much more abstract. Mm. Um, well, as my friend Miguel said, the best work is multidimensional. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just exist on one plane; mm -hmm. it exists on on several planes and several points of engagement. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it's a very good tool for that. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I think that's a uh, a great place to leave it. We've got an hour and seven minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you very much. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Undergang Armchair. The intro and outro music was kindly provided by Johnny Ripper, and today's interstitial music was provided by Cesus. You can find links to their music and tons of other conversations with great people on our cyanotypical website, culturalbandwidth.com. If you do like the show, we would appreciate it if you just take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. It'll help others find us. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.